hours sitting in the shade Just wishing I could shine Now the sun has come my way And I feel like it's my time If it can't be gotten You know that I'ma get it If you never gonna swing Then you never gonna hit it So if I get a chance You know that I'll be taking it Because I have a dream Now watch me as I'm chasing it Looking at me wonder, wonder, wonder How I'm working it The whole time I got in my mind What my purpose is What I'm talking about Just scratching what the surface is I'm the man with these flows I don't know what nerve I really is. feel like it's my time It ain't no need in me lying I mean, look at all these blessings Ain't no need in me crying Did you selling? Ain't no need in me buying I will never be forsaken Ain't no need in you trying Ain't no need, ain't no need 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 Shouts out to LB for that intro track, man. Shouts out to my boy. You really did your thing, man. Appreciate that. Appreciate the love. I'm back. Another episode of the Destroying Doubt Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to support us. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you so much. Got another good show for y'all today. Got another special guest. My guest today. Let me go ahead and introduce him for y'all. He attended the U.S. Air Force Academy. He graduated from ECU with a bachelor's in communication and a concentration on journalism. He has been doing journalism now for the past four years. He worked in Charleston, South Carolina for two years at NBC and CBS, covering national news stories such as the Charleston Church Massacre, including Dylan Roof, and he also covered the Walter Scott shooting. He's currently working overseas as a public affairs official for the U.S. Army and Guitar. Go ahead, wherever you at, and let's make some noise for my boy, J.L. Summers. Y'all didn't even catch that. We got sound effects now. I ain't even going to rub it in. What's going on, man? Hey, what's going on, Jay? What's going on, dog? Not much, man. How, how you doing today? I can't complain, man. I'm blessed and highly favored. Just want to thank you for coming on the show, man, spending time with us, talking to us, helping us all. You know, want to appreciate, just appreciate you for doing that. I'm just grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. For sure, man, for sure. So, you know, I was looking at your website, and I noticed that you attended the U.S. Air Force Academy, but it said that you graduated from ECU. Could you explain to us why you didn't finish at the U.S. Air Force Academy? Yeah, man. Um, it's, it's kind of a, I wouldn't say a dark spot in my uh, educational history, uh, but it was just one of those things that wasn't for me. Um, my parents, very uh, forward-thinking people, thought it would be a great idea for me to attend this, uh, <laughs> quotation marks, uh, prestigious university. So I went to the prep school for a year, which is basically another year, year in high school, get my grades or my SAT scores up and whatnot, get in shape. And then I attended the Air Force Academy for two years. Unfortunately, it's a school that is heavily based in math and science. And as you said earlier, my degree is in communications with a concentration in journalism. So naturally, I did not have an affinity for math or science. So um, I went to the Air Force Academy for two years, played rugby there. Uh, My grades weren't that great. And they, in not-so-nice terms, told me that I did not have what it takes 
to be an Air Force officer. So I sought education elsewhere, and I was fortunate enough to graduate from East Carolina University in 2013 with a GPA of, I believe it was like 3.25, and um, was able to go on and pursue a career in journalism. Here I stand. Cool, man. Cool. Good good story. Why why ECU? Um, to be honest, man, it was just I got my associates from Pitt. They have a great relationship with Pitt Community College. And it was just I left Pitt, <laughs> went straight to ECU. I was tired of school. I was beaten down. I was ready to get that degree so I could make some real money. Okay. All right, cool. So you chose ECU, which I think is a great school. What made you go into journalism? Um, I've always had a, a passion for words, and um, I just felt like journalism would really help, I guess, uh, smooth out those rough edges, help me find my voice, and I've always loved speaking to people, and journalism is that, that tool of choice when you're trying to speak to the masses, so um, I went to school, um, I had a high school teacher who really instilled a love of journalism in me, and I just felt like I, I had to give it a shot, so I just pulled up and shot the tray and i came up big what can i say okay okay so when you decided journalism and you went to school for it, you learned to trade what led you to charleston south carolina well um a lot of people don't know i was born and raised for a little bit in charleston south carolina before my parents picked up and moved me and my uh, younger brother to uh, north carolina so Charleston is just one of those places, is one of the top destinations in the world to visit. Tourists from all over the world come to visit it. But um, Charleston is just one of the places where I had family. I grew up a little bit there. I got the beach. I'm not that far from Charlotte if I wanted to catch a football or basketball game. And overall, just the southern atmosphere of Charleston is just really beautiful. So when you graduate from college, you naturally you don't want to stay in your college hometown. And, and I didn't get a job in Raleigh or Charlotte. So Charleston called me and um, asked if I was interested. So I went running. That's all she wrote. So you went running. What did you go running to? What was that opportunity? What was that job? Um, initially, it was with uh, NBC at first. Um, they didn't offer me that much money, but it was just something to kind of get my foot in the door. Um, I worked there for about a year and a half and um, covering stories like homelessness in the holy city. Like a lot of people don't know that just because Charleston is such a beautiful city, it has an extremely high homeless uh, rate. Like, I'm talking about people who live maybe less than a mile away from the center of downtown, living in tent cities in the woods, near, like, a recycling center, don't have any uh, running water. They take baths in, like, public restrooms and stuff like that. Sometimes they scrounge through the garbage to get food. And I'm talking people who are elderly, teenagers who run away from home, people who come from up north hoping to find a better uh, way of life just because it's so expensive and cold to live up north. So, as a whole... That first year really showed me how much people do to kind of pursue their dreams, and sometimes they, they end up failing. And then after my year with uh, NBC, I went ahead and transferred to CBS where I could work with a chief photographer. A chief photographer is usually an individual who's worked an extremely long time in business who helps uh, critique and hone the skills of younger photographers so they can hope, uh, have a chance to become a chief themselves and teaching future generations of uh, photojournalists. So I spent about a year there in NBC, and that's where I kind of uh, – I mean CBS, excuse me. And that's where I had the opportunity to cover the Charleston Massacre, unfortunately, and the Walter, Walter Scott police shooting. So uh, those two and a half years were very, uh, I guess you can say, uh, shape-forming in my uh, journalistic career. Hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. You can't just can't just skim over that. You you said 
the the Charleston Charleston massacre, the the church shooting involving Dylan Roof, correct? Yes, correct. So, is there any what? So you're saying you were there firsthand covering this, right? Yes, I was. What could you tell us about that situation? What insight can you give us into that situation? Um, a lot of people don't know, um, especially uh, if you're from the Charleston area, you know somebody who's had firsthand experience with uh, Emmanuel AME Church. Either you've had family members get married there, friends or family who've attended services. Like, There's not somebody who's been born or raised near that city that doesn't have ties to that church. So me, I had a cousin who was married there about three summers ago, uh, ago, and I've attended that church before. So when I got on scene, I was one of the first cameras. And I'm talking about police are everywhere, armed from head to neck. I'm talking about Kevlar vests, semi-automatic rifles, uh, helmets. They have it completely cordoned off. There's like, I believe there's like three or four ambulances, and they've essentially blocked off the whole street. They're still looking for Dylan Roof at that time because they did not know, didn't know if he had fled the city and was on his way to the upstate of South Carolina. And then you start seeing people crying across the street um, at a church, uh, not a church, but a hotel. I'm talking about people who are family members who knew their uh, aunts, their uncles, their grandmothers, their mothers, their fathers who had gone into service Bible study that night and didn't know whether or not they were alive. And you start seeing people just showing up, crying, not knowing what's going on. You start hearing stories like they found a child hiding underneath her grandmother and her aunt pretending to be dead, hoping that Dylan Roof didn't shoot them. How one woman begged for the life of the children, asking um, Roof not to shoot her or the child um and then you i started getting and of course the whole time i'm doing this i'm having to be on social media because a part of my job as a journalist was letting the people know as to why they couldn't get down a major thoroughfare in downtown charleston as to why they couldn't drive by this church or why was there so many uh police in the area why was the major thoroughfare like the highway cut off from downtown it's because they were actively looking for this monster who had gone in and killed these uh, non-innocent souls. So throughout all of that, I'm sitting there and tweeting, taking pictures. Um, I got calls from all over the world. BBC wanted to interview me at one point. Um, I had people, I ended up doubling like my Twitter followers just for me tweeting about what was going on. And even to this day, I still have footage that I shot that night that's been circulated on CNN, MSNBC, Fox News, and the list goes on. So just as a whole, being there that night, and watching that story progress is it's just surreal, especially when you're on the front lines and you're seeing everything that's happening and you're hearing the conversation and you're getting directions from people back in the station asking you to get candid interviews with grieving uh, family members and trying to get them on camera. And overall, it's just a really sticky situation where it kind of makes you question your morals and your ethics when you're in a situation like that. Okay, okay, so hold up, hold up. You, you were saying you were getting word back from the station to to shoot certain footage, right? Correct. So a question that I have, and I'm pretty sure a lot of people at home have, when, they're, when we're watching the news, we want to, we want to know that what we're watching is uh, genuine. So when you're when you're working for a media outlet and you're doing what you do, how much control, like, do they tell the reporters what to say? Do they tell you what to shoot? Well, you just said that you were being told what to shoot. But how much control is going on behind the scenes that we don't see at home? What well, pe- people fail to realize when um you see a camera crew out in the field, um, their job is to essentially get – 
all the video they can and then try to comprise the story from the video they have and the sound that they obtain. Now, when that crew's out there, they're not communicating with the people back in the news station for the most part, especially during a, a set when, you know, tragic incidents like that or big news coverage. Like sometimes you'll have somebody in here asking you to ask certain questions, especially when you're going to uh, during a live shot. A live shot is when you see like a news broadcast happening in real time, basically. So, you know, you go and you interview people for the, you try to get about two or three different perspectives. And then the reporter will try to write their story and the videographer or the photojournalist will try to edit uh, a TV package, essentially the story that's going to be broadcasted after the reporter leaves the, uh, the screen and try to match uh, video to whatever the reporter is saying on the on tape at that time. Now, during this process, of course, a lot of people don't realize that producers, the people who write the scripts for the anchors and sometimes reporters back in the station try to dictate uh, the story being told. They'll go through the script and say, you need to cut this or try to get this angle out. So it's just not the story that's being told by the video, uh, the photojournalist and the reporter. It's also the story that's trying to be conveyed by the producer. So during this period, even though, for instance, I might shoot two or three hours of something, only about a minute and a half of that video may make uh, air at that time. Sometimes the shots may not be steady. Sometimes part of the interview may not be good but as a whole there are countless minutes that a lot of people won't see that goes onto the air that's just lost in archive files and saved for later dates or not used at all so so what you're saying is pretty much it's chopped down heavily so you know we're always told that the film doesn't lie so which essentially what you're saying is that the film could potentially lie if you know you have two hours of footage and it's chopped down to an hour and a half that you can be heavily influenced with what actually occurred in two hours of footage to fit a narrative uh is broken down into a minute and a half absolutely i mean it's the same way we see, you see in movies um someone can say i hate dogs that bite people right and then that person say you know what we can just say this person hate I hate dogs and just cut that sound bite off right there and then show this person gesturing towards a dog that uh, they could just be playing with or having a frisbee in their hand. And with the right special effects, you can take the frisbee out of the hand, make the person look like they're yelling at the dog saying, get away from here, da-da-da-da-da. And no one will ever know the wiser if the uh, post-production editor can make that uh, TV happen. So I've always been told do your due diligence. Just because you see it on TV doesn't mean it's that's completely and accurately correct. There's always going to be, you know, other, uh, there's always another narrative out there that you have to actually actively seek out. So even if you grew up watching Channel 9 News all your life, I'd say watch Channel 12, watch Channel 7 to get three different perspectives about what's going on about a particular story. And even then, I would still go and read a newspaper or try to actually talk to somebody who might have been a part of that situation. See, that's what I was going to ask. So what if what if you say, you know, do all three sources, watch Channel 7, 9, and 12. What if all three of them are lying to you? <laughs> like, I mean, what, what do we do? Like, um, You have to go, get out there and ask those questions. I mean, now, fortunately, now that we have social media, when they post these stories to the uh, – to Facebook or Twitter, get on these uh, conversation boards and say, well, why did this happen? And da, 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 da. And sometimes stations tell their reporters or their talent not to, you know, engage with the media. But as a journalist, it's 
I mean, that's their responsibility. People need to know this narrative. I was like, yeah, yeah, you have corporate America that tries to rein these reporters in and make sure that they tell the narrative that they've been told to tell. But at the same time, your moral compass should also tell, let people know that, hey, there's more to this story. Get out there and try to root around and find those facts. Because I can guarantee you, for the most part, TV, uh, TV journalists and uh, print journalists don't uh, coordinate well. Whatever a TV journalist might say, I would go and say, read behind on a, a newspaper journalist because that newspaper journalist is going to sit down. They don't have as, as tight of a deadline because they only run print once a day. So he or she might have more time to develop the story, get the quotes they're looking for, and give you a more in-depth view. But, you know, you just have to be diligent about the, uh, the information you're absorbing because I feel like this day and time, we're so quick to tweet out something, repost something on Facebook without know taking the time to really digest what we've just read or seen wow wow that makes sense so you know we're dealing with dealing with all of this what were the moral issues that you faced internally with going through you know what you were going through I, with working with the media i think the hardest part was i for one i hate putting a camera in someone's face who's just lost a family member it makes you feel dirty it's kind of like being a lawyer who chases ambulance you don't want to be that person you want to give this t- these people time to grieve, time to process, and time to reflect upon the tragedy that's just been visited upon them. So that part right there just made me feel really bad. And then you're having to deal with the right-wing nuts, the left-wing nuts. They want to get on camera and stuff like that and say, oh, well, all white people are like this. They constantly want to come in and murder our people and stuff like that. Then you get up there and, you know, another white person might say, I don't hate black people. I have black friends and I would I'd feel a little ter- terrible if they were killed and stuff like that. And then you have someone who's in the middle is like, this is a tragedy on both sides, that this is just further created a divide amongst the races and stuff like that. And then you'll have a producer who's like, well, let's just get the two right wing and left wing nuts. Forget the person in the middle because they don't add anything to the story. But they do add something to the story. It shows a different perspective. But just because it wasn't sensational or uh, didn't stir the pot enough, that interview is not going to make the cut. So there's a lot of strings being pulled in media that a lot of people don't realize. At the end of the day, it's all about the number of likes, the number of views, and the number of times it's circulated amongst the populace. It doesn't matter the information that's sometimes being conveyed. What matters is the amount of people, amount of eyes that is touched, and how many people advertisements they can get out there behind it and bring money into the company. Okay, okay. So, so going along with the theme of destroying doubt. You obviously had these more issues that you were dealing with. You you had these these things that you were seeing that you knew weren't right. So my question to you is, how did you overcome it? And if you haven't overcame it yet, what do you do? Like, do you continue to work in the media and just be yourself and go against the grain? Do you start your own independent media? Like, what do you do from here? I mean, me personally, I've always been one who's very been very been outspoken about certain things and when someone tells me sounds like no i'm not doing that you can find a different story or a different photographer to do that but i good conscience can't go along with that i'll go back and say i didn't get that footage that you wanted i didn't feel right doing it because i've been told by numerous news directors news directors i have great news judgment at the end of the day you just can't sacrifice your morals in the good of a story because 20 years down the road 
It's not going to matter. It's like, oh, I got this woman on camera crying. That's not what's going to connect with people. What's going to connect with people is that you took the time to let this woman grieve. And then at a later date, it's like, hey, I know a few weeks ago that you were really upset that you lost your grandmother in that tragic accident or that tragic uh, massacre. But would you take the time to sit down and talk to me and give me a feature about what have you been going through over the last couple of weeks? And that's the time you take to really, you make the connection with people. You get the real story. And then when you tell that story to the masses, they realize that, hey, I didn't get it instantly, but I'm so much better off for knowing that this young man or this young woman took the time to speak with this woman who was gr- grieving about the loss of a family member. And now I feel more connected to the story, more connected to the true narrative. And now I'm more well-informed about as to the plight that is plaguing the world right now. The society we live in right now, we want the instant gratification, but as a journalist, you have to realize that different timelines being being ran, and sometimes the roundabout way is sometimes the better way because you end up making longer-lasting connections, and you become a better person because of it. For me, I took a break from television. Um, um, Like you said, I'm working in public affairs military but i'm able to control the narrative that's happening over here i tell the heartwarming pieces about people working hard and being away from families and stuff like that and taking pictures um i tell people constantly especially young journalists don't compromise your morals because just because someone else is willing to get down the mud and get dirty doesn't mean that's the right way to do it because in the long run you're going to end up hurting a lot more people and you're going to be known as a sleazy reporter or a sleazy journalist and it's going to be harder for you to garner those interviews and get those really in-depth pieces that will make the world a better place. Um, Yeah, those people who get down the mud might rise fast, but they're going to fall even faster. So when I tell people constantly, be true to yourself and be true to the things that they taught you in, in journalism school. Stick to those principles and you'll go far and you'll have a much more fulfilling career. I mean, it's, it was hard, I mean, when you step out away from the business and all that you're accustomed to, but once you get a grasp of what you're doing and you feel that you're really accomplish, accomplishing something in the world, you feel better because of it. And that's what I was going to ask you. Do Does the media outlets out there, do they pursue those uh, quote-unquote sleazy reporters more than they do uh, guys like yourself with more moral maturity? Um, I think what they look for more than anything is the aesthetic uh, uh, beauty of an individual. If you're going to be on camera, they want somebody who's pretty, who's going to draw eyes of the of the masses and will fit the narrative they're trying to portray. As far as, as people who work behind the scenes, they want somebody who can give them the glitz and glam for the least amount of money. So, you know, it's all about how you're perceived by the media outlets. As far as it is overseas, they don't look for sensational journalism. They keep it pretty uh, PG. They don't want people knowing all their business as to where in America sometimes they just want to air all your dirty laundry and say, take us as we are. So, you know, it all depends on the media outlet and the people who are at the bottom ranks doing the hiring, essentially. Okay, okay. You mentioned being overseas in Qatar, when you when you when and if you come back to the states, what do you plan to do? I know you say you took a break. What do you plan to do as far as media and television is concerned once you get back to the states? Uh, me personally, I would love to work in a in a position that works for the university. I'm really focusing on my videography, and while at the same time pursuing uh, entrepreneurial careers of starting my own media consultant firm, especially working with small uh, towns. Uh, 
filming high school games, doing highlights for uh, young high school athletes, uh, video uh, videotaping uh, plays and small programs high schools put on, and allowing people, whether you have family members in a distant country, living in Idaho, North Dakota, South Dakota, and being able to see their grandkids or their children performing these uh, performances while they're away. So essentially, I want to be able to work in an aspect where I'm my own boss and be able to provide joy to the people who aren't able to be there with their family members. Wow. That, I mean, those are good goals to have, man. I commend you on that. Salute to you. Hats off to you. I wish you well with all your endeavors. Is there, I mean, with everything you've learned from, you know, uh, leaving the Air Force Academy to going to ECU to pursuing your degree to working in the media and now overseas in public relations, you know, this long journey that you've been on, is there anything that you would like for the people to know to help them in their journey uh, moving forward? Um, I would just let them know that the world doesn't owe you anything. Um, my journey has been long, it's been strenuous, but everything I've gotten has been through my own hard work and my own uh, sweat. Um, it's far more gratifying, um, it's far more meaningful, and I feel like I've, I have a better grasp about who I am as a person. It's not always about the end game, it's, all, it's more about the journey. Um, if anybody is listening to this right now and who's known me ever since I was a child, you know that my parents raised me to be a strong black man, uh, to believe in myself, education comes first, and all this in the nine. And um, unfortunately, I was I went off to a school that didn't value my individuality, my hard work ethic when it came to certain things, and they put me out essentially because I wasn't I didn't fit their cup of tea. They didn't want to make the investment in me any longer, so I had to go out there and build myself up. Um, this podcast is all about destroying doubt. And I must admit, by 2009, I had a lot of doubt within myself after leaving the Air Force Academy. But uh, through perseverance, prayer, and hard work, I was able to become the man I am today. Um, you have to push through. Not every day is going to be rainbows and butterflies, <laughs> even by a little bit. I wouldn't even say 10% are rainbows and butterflies. 95% of the time, you're going to be dancing in the rain, crying, looking for a towel, and nobody's going to hand you it. You're going to have to take you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to believe in yourself. And you're going to have to tell your narrative to other people behind you, letting them know that you, they can't quit. They have to believe in themselves and they have to believe in their own intestinal fortitude to get through it. Um, social media, media in general, it can be a tool. It can be a weapon. It's all up to you. Um, process it. Do your due diligence and make the best out of it. And hopefully you become more enlightened. Um, try to have dialogues with people from different cultures, different backgrounds. And become a better person because, uh, because of it. We live in a day of uh, day and time now that we <laughs> have a very uh, different president than we had a week ago. So I think now more than ever we need to be more uh, plugged in, not to social media, but to uh, societal issues, and become more informed, uh, more educated, so we can have positive and enlightened dialogue. So that's what all I have to say to the people out there. Um, be strong, be confident, be who you are, accept who you are, and be educated about it. Wow. Po powerful message, man. Very empowering. Before we get out of here, I just want to take one lesson to share with the people before we go. You you said that you were removed from the Air Force Academy program, a very prestigious program that your parents wanted for you, that you wanted or whatever, and they removed you from it for various reasons. Could you mm -hmm. Could you tell us what they told you? when you were removed from the program, like some of the things that they told you? Um, 
So I was 20 years old, sitting at a big mahogany table, and six people from six officers, I believe it was three majors, lieutenant colonel, and a full board colonel, essentially told me that I had wasted the Air Force's time and I would never amount to anything after my three years in Colorado Springs, Colorado. Um, they told me that I was a poor investment, that anything after after leaving the academy would be just a step down or a failure because I didn't amount to anything. Um, it's really disheartening when you have people, adults, say that to a 20-year-old man. You're still trying to figure out who you are, uh, where you're going to go, and essentially where you've been already. So when you hear that type of talk, Either it'll beat you down or it'll infuriate you to a point where you want to success, uh, succeed just in spite of them. That, that's, sorry, I, I just want to cut you off real quick. So mm-hmm. the, the point I was trying to get to when they told you that, that I'm pretty sure there was a period of time you said you were 20 years old, that you actually believed them. Like you, you, you believed that what they were saying was true, that you wouldn't amount to anything, that you had was your time and you never were going to be anything. Is that correct? To a certain extent, I wouldn't say immediately after that. I was a little bit angry, but when you're at a community college after being at a four-year university, a prestigious four-year university, then yes, you you begin to doubt yourself. Okay, and obviously from <laughs> from your intro that I gave and the story that you gave, that definitely didn't turn out to be true. Not even a little bit. There it is. Any last words, man? Um, just thank you for the opportunity. Hopefully, this message means something to some people out there. And if uh, there are any future journalists are out there right now, just remember what I said. Stay true to your own narrative and be the change that you hope to see in the world. So that's all. Cool, man. Thank you for coming on. I appreciate the message. And just take this from it, one little jewel or whatever. Don't just apply that to journalism. Everybody out there isn't going to be a journalist or a media person or whatever. Whatever you're doing, whatever you're pursuing in life, don't put your morals aside. Don't put yourself aside and you don't go along with it internally. Uh, be yourself. Be true to yourself. Be true to your morals and your values. And that will always shine through. Don't go for the big story. Don't go for the promotion. Don't go for whatever else if it's dirty. Because when you go when you go in dirt, you get dirty. And that's just going to be the end of it. But. Like like I want to say again, man, I appreciate you for coming on. Thank you for sharing light on your situation and sharing everything that you've been doing, man. Thank you so much. Thank you.